Now we don't have any value. Langdon, I have I have yes? some bad news for you. What's that? I'm I'm not actually the podcast co-host. Um, mm. I'm I'm not I'm not really like I'm I'm a music journalist as I've said in the past, and I ha- I have a nefarious reason to be on this podcast. Um, Hit me. There's no easy, there's no easy way to say this, but I was sent by the Elven anti-defamation league to get close to you and then turn you in to the elven authorities for your crimes against elf kind this is because i revealed that you all have cloaca isn't it well it didn't help your case um and and this is when i'm springing the trap right so you should expect like very ineffective agents to appear at your house and and i don't know try and shoot bows at you i guess or bake you bread which lasts you a few years um but yeah i just i had to come clean i think this sting operation is at an end i'm uh i'm i'm actually immune to um to bows uh both piercing and slashing damage um Mm. and as an italian uh, I'm very strong against bread. Uh, so do your worst. Um, I know your nasty secrets. We, we have been foiled by your Italian blood. Yeah, uh, my, my tricksy demon nature as uh, Los Italianos uh, uh, comes to bear and to protect me against the wicked elf kind, which mm. again, I'm going to say it. People hate it when I say this, but it's true. You're all derived from lizards closer to birds than people and because of that you have a cloaca and because of that your mating habit is that of a cloacal kiss so you're assuming like folded into this discussion that i'm also an elf just because i work for them but that's that's not the case actually well i'm 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 racist so i assume that if you work for with Uh, elves that you are an elf yeah speaking of racists (laughs) <laughs> Do you want to talk about the most <laughs> Baudelairean coup ever? I I feel like I feel like we have to, given that we talk about politics and I'm an American. Um, I feel uh, obligated. Um, even though I I'm I'm currently still dumbfounded. I mean, not in the scared way anymore. Just in the like, what kind of? <laughs> I think for me, like. 
the 6th of January coup never took place is kind of where I'm at right now. Like to to parallel with Baudrillard's right, like the Iraq war never took place. Yeah. <laughs> it's so there's a there's a lot you could say about it. And just to be clear, I'm joking. I do think there's like it's a credible danger and, and, and a oh. credible event. And people who try to downplay it as, well, it failed and they were jokers, like you they don't get the point of of what this does and like how acidic it is to political society. Yeah, um, it's, it's the Pandora's box problem. You can't having an event like this is either quashed immediately and firmly in a way that sucks all the air out of out of it as a movement from then on, or it is a seed. Yeah, and I think it's also safe to say that you know in the past few years. American society has crossed like a thousand Rubicons, a oh, thousand, yeah. a thousand like borderlines, which you, oh, we'd, we'd never, that would never happen here, right? Um, but I think it's interesting to the degree in which so much of it happened in this mediated, almost mimetic way, right? Like it's so, it's such a postmodern sort of occurrence from, you know, the, what what is he called now online? The Maga Shaman? Yeah, uh, the, the Q the Shaman or whatever. The yeah. Q Shaman, yeah. Like you can only get someone like that if you're under like a postmodernist state, right? Like mingling so many incongruous and supposedly contradictory symbols without there's no disavowal, there's no shame, there's no irony. There's just like symbols don't mean anything anymore. They don't signify anything anymore. So I can use them in like all these sorts of really twisted ways without even thinking about it. He's not, he's not like an auteur, right? He didn't like craft this image intentionally. It's just the way that everything flows together now, right? Everything is so liquid. You can get this guy and you can get people hanging like, what what were the, the the some of the flags they were hanging? Like they 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 didn't want to hang Golden Dawn flags, so that people won't call them Nazis. So they hung up like Greek nationalist flags. It's it's it, it feels like it's scripted, but of yeah, course it, the point is that it's not. It it hits a it hits at one element um, that I think people are are wary to take away from postmodernist studies, and especially. Um, certain Marxist types who view this as um, almost blasphemous to materialist dialectic. Um, but I think it's important to remember that materialism refers to the world. It does not refer to the psyche. This is the most fundamental break. Um, and when we start applying the rules of the physical world and of the political world firmly into the rules of the psychological world and the world of the psyche, that's where we start seeing slippages and equations that don't actually pan out. Like through a pure dialectical process, we couldn't really get what was going on with that coup. It would, it would just be nonsense, but that's because on a certain fundamental level, and this is one of the key insights of the postmodernists, the world of the psyche is that of an ungrounded, like primordial chaos. Um, things don't have to be coherent in the realm of the psychological. They don't have to mean 
either the same thing or consistent things. This is actually Deleuze's. Oh, there we go. There's his name, boys. Um, <laughs> Deleuze's whole thing about deterritorialization and reterritorialization in conceptual space is precisely him just observing this. He isn't saying it's good or bad. He's just saying like, this is a thing that I've seen that philosophers seem not to want to comment on because we naively, idealistically believe there is more um, sense grounding than sense making in the world. Yeah. Uh, by by which I mean that yeah. sense making is an active tense thing where we force rubrics of logic onto a world that doesn't necessarily have them so that we can understand it. But then we don't always take into account that because we force this onto it, there's nothing necessarily inside these symbols aside from what people are using them to do. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in the dynamic that's already been established this season on, on Death Sentence, I, I, I try to see like how these two things can be reconciled. Well, the two parts like Marxism and postmodernism need to compromise a bit. And then I think it actually gives us a deeper um, insight into these events. And the best person to always use to do that is Jameson. I too, criminally underread, by the way. Um, if you haven't, yeah, it's fun please. Fundamentally, his whole project. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think um, if you haven't read Postmodernism or The Logic of Late Capitalism, you absolutely have to read it. It's a fantastic text. And what he tries to show is how I totally agree that materialism interacts in certain unexpected or unintelligible ways when it comes to like the human psyche and the human relationship with symbols. But the fact that that is so, the fact that our reason and our perception of reality has become divorced from any ability to actually touch it or interact with it, is a result or is influenced by the economic structures under which we live in. I think one of the most interesting interactions that you saw in this case is the class identity of the, well, let's call them what they are, right? terrorists. Um, and this idea, you know, this myth of the disenfranchised worker who takes out um, their aggression on minorities. Right? That's one of the myths that the right has been spreading and that the left has been consuming and agreeing with in the last like 40 years, I would say, or even less. You know, there's like a mass, the mass of people is are disenfranchised and poor and downtrodden and the elites don't listen to them. And therefore, they become white supremacists and become terrorists and, you know, storm the capital. It, it's a thought you, that's yeah. so fucking stupid that I literally <laughs> just get gobsmacked when I hear it. Yeah. Because it's, it's stupid in such a complex way, though. Like, that's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, stupidity <laughs> only goes so far, right, to explain it. Um, but then you start to think about what sort of class um, diagram or perspective it represents and what form of dialectics it reinforces. And it's this idea that the reason we should do revolution is if we don't, we'll get fucked. Right? Like if we don't do revolution, then we will never convince most people that the left is good. 
So we'll have to first tyrannically control them and um, force them to go along with the revolution. Now, a lot of leftists, that's their reading of Lenin, which is ridiculous. Like their reading of, of, of a revolutionary vanguard is people who force the, the dumb fuck masses to be leftists because they're actually on the right, which is just baby talk, right? Like um, what, what, when you actually look at, the, at what happened and you look at these people, that is the terrorists and the people who, who try to do the coup or whatever we want to call it, they are lawyers and IT specialists and insurance salesmen and what's called the free trades. They are firmly of the middle class, right? They are firmly motivated and more than motivated, enabled by middle class structures. Like who can afford to take time off from work and fly to DC and participate in a coup? Like poor people can't do that. They literally just can't afford it, right? I, That's one. It, it, yeah. it reminds me of a, a conversation I had recently with other other people in the music world where they were talking about going to, they were bummed partly from coronavirus, or, outside of the obvious things, like there were some festivals in Europe that they were planning on going to, and they're like, yeah, now I can't go to them, and they had some really interesting lineups, and I offhandedly commented, like, I've never been to a european festival and that's not really foreseeable in my future and they're like oh you should you should go you live right by dc it's actually only a couple hundred bucks uh, round trip to do that and then i had to calmly broker to them or broke to them that uh i don't have a couple hundred bucks to just throw on a like a fun trip to europe like that's yeah and yeah that 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 kind of obviously you have that at play for something as, as frivolous as going to a concert is, as meaningful as that can be. But then you have that played out, as you were saying, like, who can take, one, take time off of work, two, not get fired from doing that, three, even if they take time off from work, have the money to to carry these yeah. things out. And yeah, you start narrowing down who these people are pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, and I'm not even talking about, like, owning... A fucking assault rifle or oh i'm sorry it's not an assault rifle it's an upgraded pistol blah 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 whatever these are all status symbols and we can go one further like who can afford to clash with the police and not get shot so of course then race comes into the question but it's not just race it's this toxic intersection of race and class right like the police are 100 more likely to use tear gas on a poorer crowd than they are on, you know, people wielding status symbols of the middle class. Someone online tried to tell me that the reason the cops didn't use tear gas on the Capitol protesters is because they were all armed. So it doesn't have anything to do with class or race, which to, to, to which I said, yes, but how could they afford to be armed? They could only afford like an AR-15 costs like 1500 bucks. Or something yeah, like that. I don't remember. They're they're not cheap. Uh, my my not, my brother cheap. has one. They're not. Yeah, they're not a. They're not something you just pick up with the weekend of extra pay. Yeah, and sure, you could pay like a, a less amount of money for a pistol, but that's that's not really what you're seeing here, right? It's not about firepower or caliber. It's about the cops who remember their job is to protect class society and property, not to stop crime. They look at the crowd and they analyze it, even if they do it unconsciously 
they analyze it and they say, what am I allowed to bring to bear against this crowd? And 100% when they see all these free tradesmen, blue collar kind of folk, they understand that they cannot go in smashing with clubs because the blowback will be incredible. So bringing it back to postmodernism, the, the question then becomes, what are the structures that are served by this like you know breakage of symbols by this fluidity of intent and result and image and meaning and the answer is <clears throat> that at the end of the day when you zoom out from like party politics and you look at this in general there is one victor and one main winner from the 6th of january and that is the police state yeah, I mean, this we we have a nightmarish um, fundament to what happened that um, I don't think we've I've I haven't seen a much uh, American reckoning with this specifically. It tends to be more international reckoning with this specific point that I'm about to bring up, largely because since everyone outside of America is removed enough that they're watching one of the most powerful political entities in the world go through this and their questions become how do we interact with a state which has done this and what can we infer about a state in which this can occur which as americans it would behoove us to be critical of those same questions but obviously we're me and my countrymen are more blinded by you know the 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 terror of witnessing a fascist coup but the important eventness of this um to sort of pull from uh, Badu for a minute, Badu. I've never heard his name said out loud. Now that I realize, <laughs> um, it's it's I've, French, so you're fucking it up anyway. Okay, yeah. And then who cares? Fuck this guy. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but the event can't occur unless precipitants of the event exist. There has to be a material substrate for the event to occur. There's no inexplicable event that can break history, at least in that atomic level. Um, and this is the thing that's the most alarming on an international level and answers some of these um, some of these other questions. I was reading uh, be because I'm a I'm a boring piece of shit who who takes politics way too seriously and is very <laughs> boring and studious. Um, I was reading things like perspectives of French, Italian, and British international uh, policing agencies on what occurred. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of the reason for this is because America is considered the number one state in the world up there with Colombia and Israel for anti-terrorist uh, mob training. Like, And now, obviously, as leftists, we can and should be critical of how they define these terms and how the definitions of those terms matter quite a bit and how they uh, wield that force. We're going to touch on that one in a second. <laughs> but <laughs> fact remains that in terms of pure depoliticized tactics. If you want to crush a mob, America's pretty good at it. Now, normally for uses of evil, but you know, still, um, you can't you can't really describe the crackdown on Occupy and Black Lives Matter protests as anything but oppressively successful um, in the vein of, of, of that broad police state. Now, the thing that becomes um, darkly fascinating and then horrific about this is Obviously, we didn't see those tactics come to bear against this coup. And it's beyond that we didn't see them come to bear. It's not like 
they were wielded improperly or they were wielded with um, excessive gentility. We simply didn't see them. And some of the fundamental things that go into this is when you know there's going to be a large crowd, you do certain um, containment and pressuring tactics. Things like having a rough perimeter of police, maybe not even with barricades, but you have people around. Basically, you go, I never want them to get to this point. So I'm going to find a place between there where I'm going to create a loose line of of police or something like that or a national guard and then if they start congregating we have a fallback plan to call in more reinforcements but if we don't need them we can just maintain this all these little things that you do specifically so that on paper the ideal is that you never need them and it's just in case some one or two like uh whack jobs go nuts and start trying to make trouble you go and snap arrests these handful of like leader figures or inciting figures in order to break the spirit of the crowd. And again, this is normally wielded for political evil for things like, you know, you can't demonstrate against the assassination of uh, Palestinian bodies or black bodies in America or, you know, any number of things like that. The fascinating thing is in this instance, we saw clear and present escalation recorded consistently and literally no police response, literally none whatsoever. We see certain things like police moving barricades and taking photos. And this is indicating not just a level of coordination or lack of care with people on the ground. That would be one thing to be concerning. The thing that ties back into the nature of this as a police state and the systemic issue of, of the nature of police states in general is the people on the ground don't control mobilization. They don't control these broader tactical decisions. They only control the very specific tactics of their own bodies or their own immediate compatriots. The fact Mm -hmm. that we didn't see these broader scale organizational efforts to contain this in any way whatsoever, let alone the complicity with it, means that there are, and this pans out in a second bit of evidence, there are figures within the executive branch going up to things like um, National Guard dispatchers and things like that, that would literally have had to have been sympathetic to this cause in order to not do very standard mobilization that you do for, you you do it for like a marathon. You do it for like a, a breast cancer survivor march. Things that you d- literally would never expect to turn violent. You just You just do it as part and parcel. And again, we know this partly from these international sources, because they go to America to train for these kinds of things. Not only do they go to America, they go to Washington, D.C., because Capitol Police, the ones who are supposed to contain this, are the ones training these international agencies. Capitol Police and Mossad do the two uh, most are the two most active in terms of international training for these kinds of incidents. So it's yeah. specifically people getting training from the people who then didn't do it, that they're like, I know that they knew what to do here and did not do it. We didn't watch a failure to do it. We watched a willing choice so, not to do these things. So I, I totally agree with all of that. But I think that what I want to get at is that opening the gates is the last step in a long chain of involvement of the police state with what happened. Well, that, that's like, that, that's what I was getting at, is that we yeah. only get to this event because all of these other preceding things existed. What we watched was more the final 1% of a downloading bar 
uh, exactly. in which 99% has already occurred. Exactly. So when you look at, and I think this is what's missing from a lot of analysis of, of events in general, right? But also of specific, the events around Trump and QAnon and all of these quasi-movements is that there's a tendency to focus on the spectacle, right? There's a tendency to focus on the symptom or on what you know Kant might call the phenomenon, right? Like the, the shape of things. But there are vastly more interesting and scary questions about how we got here to begin with and the ways in which the state is complicit in creating the conditions that preface the actual event, right? And this is where, you know, I don't know if anyone like that is listening to us, but this is the big way in which conspiracy theories and like tinfoil thinking reinforce the state, reinforce these actors. Because instead of looking at the very real, boring, and mundane interactions between the state and all of these groups, interactions which are the ones that actually enable things like this to happen. So that's stuff like you said, like looking the other way and making shit disappear and just being negligent in the right places and being incompetent in the, in the right places. Instead, you preface this romantic, narrativized, almost like a literature version of how things work because it's sexier and it's more interesting. So instead of thinking of the ways in which you know, conditions and uh, base and superstructure and stuff like that interact, you know, real boring, dry Marxist shit, you imagine this John Lacare cloak and dagger kind of thing where whispery figures, you know, hang around corridors and make dossiers disappear instead of, oh, we just made sure that George had some time off for the day because George is a guy, I don't know why I said George. <laughs> Any <laughs> George is listening, I apologize. Um, George clicked the what big red done, button. George? <laughs> yeah, why? Why would you do that? We, we know what you did. Like George pressed this really big button that says, coup time. And he pressed that button and like all the MK Ultra agents got activated or whatever. To, to, to be clear, like those conspiracies do exist. Like we're not gonna go into what I believe or don't believe, but like those conspiracies do exist, but they are mostly unnecessary to explain the heinous shit that we saw last week or that we've been seeing for the past five years. You don't I mean, need conspiracies to explain the interaction between the state and these groups. We get another um we get another another layer to this of a lesson that America is consistently prone to not learn. Um, which is uh they shouldn't be controversial in this space. Um the fact that 9-11 was the fault of the American superstructure. Not necessarily the American people, not saying like the victims of 9-11 deserve 9-11. That's not what I'm saying. But yeah. the state apparatus generated the conditions that caused 9-11 to occur and did so almost knowingly. Uh, like when I say almost, I mean like very nearly. Not to say that it was an inside job either, but it is a long tail of when you do things like train and arm groups like the group that became Al-Qaeda. They, they weren't named Al-Qaeda at the time, but we we did 
uh, arming and training the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan in order to resist uh, Soviet invasion. Uh, lots and lots of history there. Better places to listen to it. But the long tail is between the training and resources they acquired, as well as witnessing both American and Soviet imperialism at work within the Middle East and this dawning realization that there, no are, there are no allies abroad. No one outside of people in the Middle East care about the Middle East or Middle Easterners. They care about it as part of uh, territory on a big chessboard. And mm -hmm. as a result, you cannot trust them and you cannot depend on them for your own safety. You then add that with the dawning... Uh, of the American age as the Soviet Union crumbled and America became basically the sole uh, persecutor of, of evil in those territories. And you have the groundwork for someone to do something very violent in response, something that we nurtured, we bred, we wielded it as an enemy against thing, or as a weapon against things that we viewed as our enemies, and then found it inevitably blowing up in our face. We see a lot of that same ground within these kinds of far-right movements where we've, we've had declassified documents now, Barack Obama and George W. Bush added a bunch of far-left groups to terrorist watch lists. Um, they, we had declassified documents recently that there was um, war games for a uh, potential Gen Z slash millennial digital revolution um, in terms of digital space, uh, in terms of how do you contain the increasing digital linkages or digital organizing that can potentially lead you to be disrupted uh, as a state apparatus uh, when idealistic young people get together. Um, you have all of these weapons and the secondary affect of them is, is again, the psychological. And you start baking into people's minds, especially people who wield this power, that the thing they need to be worried about in America isn't far right wing extremists who want to implement fascism. It's they need to worry about cancel culture. They need to worry about the youth being too extreme. They need to worry about they they're coming for your money because they think well, uh, wealth inequality is more scary than communism. You generate conditions in which people are going to be far more likely when push comes to shove to look to turn a blind eye to one thing and very harshly penalize another that these aren't this actually ties into analytics of the rise of fascist states abroad, where, and again, my, I don't even know why it's controversial notion that we must humanize things like rapists and Nazis and the like, in order to understand they don't emerge like the Joker out of a bush. They yeah. are people who look and act like us, who simply do heinous, functionally unforgivable things. And once you have that realization, the notion that people can be dragged step by step by step, maybe they don't have it in their hearts, but maybe they let it happen or maybe they help it to occur. This is the thing that I mentioned before that drove me up the wall about the whole like, all of these people are simply the disenfranchised working class, which is yeah. like, yeah, so complexly wrong, because it's like, oh, yes, but you can. <laughs> Sorry, my. Being no, in America dealing with this makes me feel like I'm dying. I I relate to this from like a different perspective, which is, oh, I'm going to go like full. Okay. Welcome to Turanon. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not going to steal the shine. Anyway, I come to this from like a Jewish person's perspective. And one of the 
worst things that I can ever hear that like drives me up the wall, makes my blood boil, is Hitler was a monster, right? Like this idea of Hitler as this Judeo-Christian ultimate Satan figure that is completely outside of human understanding and morality. Well, the point is exactly the opposite, right? The point of the lesson, well, there are many lessons, but one of the main lessons of the Holocaust and World War II is you don't need to be a monster to do genocide, right? Um, but the thing is, the current system is predicated on the idea that, yes, you have to be a monster to do those things. It's the same sentiment that drives the idea, this is not America, right? These are lapses. Donald Trump, by the way, hot take incoming, Donald Trump can't, I'll, I'll, I'll do it the other way, has to be a fascist. Because if he's not a fascist, if he's actually part of the American establishment, if he is inside the limits of American liberal democracy, then that says some fucked up things about American liberal democracy. And when, when you look at the history of America, you start to notice that Trump is not a one-off. He's not a break in the system. The proper governance of the American nation as dictated by the powers that be did not fall it did not break it did not stop it continued right um these are not external entities they are not monsters from the beyond that are somehow colonizing the system and the same thing that goes to to trump goes also to the protesters this idea that these people are some sort of primeval primordial, a uh, 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 bedrock of disenfranchised, quote-unquote, masses, right? Even that world, right? Like a mass writhing underneath society at the bottom rungs is ludicrous. They are of the center. They are that which American society rallies around when it rallies around something. They are in the middle of the consensus of the American political system, right? Um, and the system, well, well, the spectacle or the image that the system would like to project, and this is where we go full circle and come back to postmodernism, the sign that the system would like to project is the opposite of that. They have to be weird. They have to be other. Um, and this is, once again, a perfect example of how liberals are, pardon the term, that's just the term, useful idiots. Right? Because they play the, their part perfectly in this charade. Because immediately, like an hour after everything happened, they were like blue check marks were on Twitter going, This is not who we are. This is a different kind of America. This is not the America I grew up in. This is not uh, Biden will restore normalcy. Right? Immediately joining hands with the right to, to do the move to make the dialectic that keeps the current system of power in power. Instead and of it, saying, I'll, I'll, one last sentence. Yeah, instead of saying, yeah, yeah, instead of saying, and by the way, this all relates directly to the book we're gonna talk about, right? Oh yeah. Uh, and this idea of otherness and identity and insideness and outsideness and all that stuff. Um, instead of saying, no, this is a natural part of the system that we are under, and this is why the system is bad, 
bro. This is why like we should dismantle capitalism and our current system of power because this is the sort of people that it creates and enables. They say the opposite. We need to bolster our system. We need to make it stronger to resist these people. And that's how you get VP Kamala Harris cop in chief. And that's how you get law and order super predator Joe Biden as your president. Because you keep making this move of those nut jobs, those crazy people, they're outside, they're out of our system, and we must bolster the inner forces of our system to resist them, instead of showing how those inner forces create them in the first place. This is also where, so another, another again, sort of boring fact about these coups, um, we look at the makeup at least of the names that have been released the the people that have been arrested things like that we can only go off of so much information a tremendous amount of them are active police retired police active military retired military um this sets up one this reinforces a common leftist narrative that gets poo-pooed by liberal space that these places create a predatory fascist atmosphere um and it's it's important to note that that's that gets wielded because it's uh, we're trying to point specifically at the structural fact that you don't have to be a fascist to to sign up for the police or to sign up for the military. I think that's that's a non-useful position. I think certainly there are people who sign up for those reasons, but I don't think you have to be. However, they are structurally in America in in Europe, in Israel, like in, in plenty of places that you'd expect, their function, their training function, the way in which they prep you before you even set foot in any real uh, zone in which you'd be deployed is to grind you slowly but surely into the ideological shape that they need necessary to deploy you. Um, this isn't even necessarily for any, um, for any obviously nefarious reason on like a one-to-one -one level on a one-to-one -one level it's i need to make sure that when i send you out into the field and tell you to do x that you do x and you don't do y um but obviously this builds into structures and that gets shaped by the structures around it such that those things you're always deployed to do are things like violence against black and brown communities violence against uh, uh queer communities things like that and never violence against um, engines of capital or violence against fascist actors like this. Uh, we then see how that spins out into how many of these people were QAnon believers. Uh, one of the primordial uh, events in at least contemporary American history that fewers this notion of a pure separation of spectacle, psyche, and the material world. Um, if anything, this is the maddening truth the sort of dionysian nietzschean insight that i wish more leftists would have which is that when we deny the material impact of non-material ideology we uh we make ourselves incapable of understanding madness and the way madness affects the world madness as separate from being crazy not mm -hmm. talking about mental illness we're not talking about personality disorders necessarily we're not talking about traumatic response those can be elements of it because those are elements of the psyche we're talking about phenomenological madness which is different this is things that are choices and behaviors built up over time not a condition of your ability um 
a secondary thing that comes here uh, comes to play here is America is the nation that genocided nearly all of its native people in order to make room for white settlers. America is yeah. the one that inherited uh, the triangle trade. And even when Europe was attempting to dismantle it on their end, granted for insanely cynical, purely optical reasons, uh, America doubled down on it, even to the point where we lost major trade uh, deals early in the life of America because of our unwillingness to shake the, uh, the institution of slavery. We're the nation that dropped the only atomic bombs in wartime. Um, and we dropped them on primarily civilian centers more than once. Um, even after Japan sued for peace on the sole condition that they keep their emperor. Guess what they still have in the year of our Lord 2021? An emperor. Yeah. Um, we're the nation that assassinated Fred Hampton and uh, abolished the Black Panthers when they were founding food kitchens and community libraries and offering community self-defense and offered the first glimpses of a non-racist Second Amendment push by arming black and brown communities, something that was seen as a fundamental threat to the law and order of America in the way that the KKK never, ever was. Um, yeah. Like, we can do this on and on and on and on that... To merely to reinforce the point that you're making, this actually builds up to why there's so much profound leftist anger towards things like a neo a neoliberal identity politics. Not that identity politics fundamentally is anti-Marxist, which is ludicrous. You can't you can't oppose queer liberation or gendered liberation and be a Marxist. I just point blank, you can't do that. That's just or if you do, you're the worst Marxist, and I hate you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, that's a better one. If you do that, fuck you. Um, but the, the conditions of neoliberal identity politics are precisely ones that instead of building them in an intersectional format, of which the primary goal is to make us understand notions of solidarity, that maybe my suffering and your suffering do not match, but perhaps they rhyme, and through this intersectional rhyming of of oppression, we can join in solidarity against the structures that oppress all of us. And maybe I reach out to help you with this today and you help out to reach for me later, as opposed to structures that atomize us and alienate us from one another such that our suffering is incommunicable and illegible to one another, which makes us fundamentally more easy to be ensnared and recaptured by the engines of a capitalist oppressive society. Like this is why it makes people so mad. Cause I see sometimes like why are, how come people can't let Kamala Harris be, you know, she's gonna be the first woman vice president, first black vice president, first uh, South Asian vice president. That part of her identity gets overlooked a lot, but it's important. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because she's a fucking cop. Like, yeah. Like, who you are doesn't overwrite the things that you do. And she's wielded her power against communities of color. She's wielded her power against trans people, against queer communities. Um, we have super predator Joe Biden. This is fundamentally also why the notion we've hit this a lot. I'm getting fiery because I'm an American and I'm now directly <laughs> victim to American fascism. Sat, most depressed rim shot. Um, uh, I'll touch on that one in a second. Um, that when we see this painted as a problem of Trump or that Trump has um, exacerbated an issue or even that Trump has revealed an issue, none of that is fucking true. None of it, yep. zero yep. percent. These issues yep. have been underlined over and over. 
Naomi Wolf wrote the shock doctrine in like 2005. All we're yeah. seeing and those tactics weren't those tactics weren't even being written about just in the context of the Iraq war. She mentioned in it and then in a redraft of the book uh, underscored it even more that those tactics were being wielded by the Chicago Police Department in black sites. Something that she was decried for and called like a liberal loony until those got declassified. And we found out that the Chicago PD had been using militarized anti-terrorism tactics against civilians that they had held without any charges and then killed and disappeared. All of this is just known now and we just don't talk about it. And if you mention Rahm Emanuel was the mayor of Chicago during this time and vetted all of this as the head of the executive branch within the city of Chicago, you get told that you're tearing down a person of color who's rising through the ranks of the Democratic Party. This is yeah. what's meant by a neoliberal identity politics, where the material actions of aiding and abetting a fascist state have no bearing simply because more women police guards. <laughs> it's a problem I... that will not go away when Trump is gone. It, this is almost why the impeachment fundamentally serves no purpose other than for the state to wash its hands of blood that it shed. Yep. I have a suggestion. Let's listen to some fucking music. I could use that. Yeah. We could oh, I have, I have one last point before I close this, which is... Oh, um, yeah, no, no, no. Do it, do it, do it. Do it. Oh, Go ahead. this is... This is it, and I promise. Um, Americans and uh, neoliberals in America, of course, talking to leftists, so neoliberalists can be a Republican or a Democrat, but it's goddamn near all of them, are referring to this as a fascist coup because they've never understood that America is a fundamentally a fascist state. The fascism that America perpetrates against people of color, against indigenous people, uh, consistently and still carries out against indigenous people. See how we are destroying their sacred sites and their their clean water supplies in pursuit of oil and material extraction. The violences we carry out against queer communities, against uh, against women, against uh, international communities. The uh, fundamental violence of empire in which we destabilize Central and South America. We destabilized fuck all of Africa. A huge portion of uh, Asia. One of the reasons we are most terrified about China because we see them as a mirror of ourselves and we are horrified by that Freudian doppelganger lurking within the mirror because we cannot fundamentally face the violence that we carry and the blood that stains uh, every single one of us. Um, we refer to it as fascism because we cannot bear to bear witness to this fundamental reality of our state. Uh when all it is, it's not even the mask slipping. It's people suddenly realizing that when they were shooting black and brown people for uh, asking police not to murder them, that, that you know, maybe this was wrong. Yeah. But chance. All right, let's do music. I feel, I feel empty now. <laughs> <laughs> the best state in which to consume music. What, what are we listening to? What's our first track? Uh, yeah, we're doing Frozen Soul, um, because oh, I, yeah. I forget oh, yeah. how to read. Um, so the, obviously there's death metal that teaches you how to read and teaches you words. And we even have uh, black metal. It's great for that. Spectral Lore, um, has, I think, very sincerely, I think they have the best lyrics writing in all mm -hmm. of heavy metal right now. Um, it's, shout out it's, to Ilos of Spectral Lore. Absolutely love him. Um fantastic dude just in general like 
yep. great, great fucking person. And music's incredible. And goddamn, that writing is so fucking beautiful. Like, we both have degrees in literature. I talked to Gareth about this as well on the show, who also has a degree in this stuff. It is legit beautiful writing. Like, fucking beautiful. However, that's not what I need right now. That's not what can heal me. The only thing that can heal me, that's right, music that makes me completely forget how to read. And that's death metal, baby. Yep, make you stupid. Uh, so, Frozen Soul... Um, are from Texas. They have the inexplicable honor um, and like they earned it, but it's also like they released their debut record on Century Media. Like <laughs> They went from an EP and two singles to a Century Media release. And that, that's in the world of heavy metal that that's the equivalent of like you play in a coffee shop and then you get signed to like Columbia or Sony. Like that's bananas. Um, and they did it, uh, largely off of the back of having death metal. That is the, uh, I would call it like the platonic ideal of death metal, much in the same way that like cannibal corpse or late period bolt thrower or, um, the early stuff from Necrot. like just, there's no frills. It's just, it's just death metal done fucking great. Mm -hmm. It's like. Everything like this would be uh, to, to reference it with anarchism. This would be death metal without adjectives. <laughs> <laughs> if you like death metal, this will meet you where you are. You can add anything you want to. You, you want to get spicy with the time signatures? Boom. You got some prog death. You want to you want to throw in some sweepies? OK, that's fine. We got our tech death. You know, you make it a little bit more spooky and cavernous. We got our OSDM revival stuff. But no, this just this just is is that um. Uh, in a Deleuzian sense, it's the perfectly smooth uh, uh, form of death metal. That which, death metal uh, without organs. Indeed. Indeed. It's, it's <laughs> so beautiful. Um, and it's so perfect. And I'm so scared of ice now. Um, I think that we will play Encased in Ice instead of Crypt of Ice, both of which are fucking tight. Largely because Encased in Ice has a really sick, slow, uh, spooky death metal intro. And then also it has Homer Simpson sounds about halfway through it. Incredible. This is uh, Frozen Soul with Encased in Ice.
All right. I hope everyone liked uh, Homer Simpson scared of ice death metal there. Um, <laughs> what a sentence. This record is so fucking tight. I'm I'm mad that someone uh, on one of the sites that I write for already wrote a review of it before I handed mine in. So now I'm just sitting on a review. Um, it's yeah. so fucking tight, though. Um, yeah. Okay, now I'm shaking. My <laughs> heart is palpitating. My eyes are rolling back in my head because we are going to talk about possibly... Well, we've done some weird books since I've joined you on this cast, but this is potentially the weirdest one or the most unsettling one. It's actually, a, we might not do the entire trilogy, but it is a trilogy. And this is The Vol by Brian Catling. The Vol is spelled V-O-R-R-H. Now... <laughs> I'm honestly scared to death to talk about this book. Uh, it's fucked up. So Brian Catling is a very interesting person. Jesus it Christ, that's going to be so difficult to talk about. Yeah, yeah. This episode's going to be long, uh, folks. Like the first part is almost, what, like 50 minutes? This part is also going to be super long. We, we apologize in advance. Wait, um, before we describe anything, I'm going to do a quick a quick count of, of pages. So we have 500 in that one. And then I am, it's uh, I am, 1500, I think. Around 1500. I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that we have the same volumes, the ones that have the really beautiful covers. Yeah, cover, the black and white covers. 962. Well, they get kind of like green and brown at a certain point. Yeah. 1362, 1382. Uh, yeah, 1391 pages. So uh, forgive us if we don't cover everything. Um, yeah. Also no, because. These books move at one trillion miles per hour while at the same time moving <laughs> at less than one millionth of a mile per hour. Yeah. And um, a lot happens and also <laughs> nothing happens. Um, so Brian Catling, this guy was born in 1948 in London. And before he was a novelist, he was a sculptor, a poet. He made films. He also did a lot of performance art. And The Vol, which he published in 2012, self-published, was his debut. It's the first book that he wrote at the age of, do the math, 60-something? Yeah. Um, he was, he was, I think he started drafting it in his late 50s. And if I remember correctly, I think the first one took like five years to draft or something. But yeah. Um, yeah. This guy, there's a Guardian interview with him from 2018 around the release of the third book, The Cloven, which is a very short interview, but it's very descriptive. And I, I'd urge people to check it out because it has some really cool quotes. One of them is the interviewer tells Brian that he had a nightmare about one of the scenes in the books. And this is what Brian has to say. First of all, the interviewer says that he looked thrilled and then goes on to say, oh, did you? He beams, sitting back as if ingesting a particular rich meal. How wonderful, how wonderful, he murmurs. So <laughs> this is the kind of person that, that we're talking about, but also is not just, quote unquote, weird or like a, a character. He definitely is, but not just that. 
he's also one of the most literary like steeped in literature and literary culture and unique voices that i have had the pleasure of reading over the last two decades um like i have like 20 tabs open right now just for all the stuff that the vol touches on and deals with and references so let me just give you the pointless and yet necessary summary of the storyline so that we can get into the actual good stuff i'm going to so, be intrigued to see how in the world you attempt to summarize this as someone who's right i'm just going to let you do it and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna I, not not to back. say that i can do a better job yeah no I, I, that's why i said it's pointless like there's no <laughs> summary that could actually introduce anyone to this book but i can like paint with a very broad brush and give you tastes of the themes that are present in it. So imagine that the Garden of Eden, get it? Because it's my name, um, actually exists. And as we would suspect or like to imagine, it exists in Africa. And it's not called the Garden of Eden by locals and doesn't really have a name, but one of the names that locals give it anyway is the Vol. And this is not your Robin Hood, Hansel and Gretel kind of forest. This is your primordial, proverbial jungle, right? Every step of the way drips with humidity and moisture and the plants go on for miles and you can lose yourself among the trees. Now, this forest is also magical, but magical again, not in the sense of King Arthur and the Wandering Beast, but magical in the sense of forces that twist and buckle reality and humanity and time and space and, you know, raw magic. Now imagine that this forest, the Vol, Eden exists in colonial Africa, right? It was never it disappeared or destroyed. And German colonialists found a town called Essenwald at the outskirts of the Vol. And they, of course, do what colonialists do, which is extract resources. So they're chopping down trees and, in general, just like extracting resources from the land when they're next to this time-buckling, mind-buckling forest. So that's one setting. The other setting is, during this time, the cusp of, we are on the cusp of photography, right? modern photography, and efforts to capture things like um, Native American spiritual dances as well as, you know, figures in 19th century life. And photography is still pretty basic. It uses the same principles of camera obscura and shadow and all sorts of stuff like that. So imagine that we are also being told a story about early photography in the spaces of, you know, your soul getting captured on a camera or time and space falling apart inside of a photograph or the inversions that happen inside the camera obscura, right? You have the image, it gets inverted in the camera obscura and then inverted once again by your eye. That's 
one, uh, that's the second storyline. And the other one is, and this is the last one that I'll give because there's like four more, <laughs> but it's the last <laughs> one that we'll focus on because it's one of the main ones. Um, think about The Bedlam, uh, uh, an infamous um, mental institution on the banks of London. And think about the inhabitants of this um, asylum and their various illnesses and mental states, which I remind you at the end of the 19th century, the height of colonialism, were very poorly understood and cobbled together. So you get people who have genuine mental illnesses alongside people who have other degenerative diseases, political malcontents, and so on. Last thing, ready for it before we start to dig into last thing, angels are also real, but they got fucked by God because they were supposed to guard the vault. They were supposed to keep man innocent. And because they didn't, God has cursed them. He's buried them in the earth and twisted all of their perception of time and how it flows. And imagine that those angels called the erstwhile are spread out across all of these stories. So we see them in the Vor, we see them in Essenwald, we see them in London, we see them in Bedlam, we see them in other places in the, in the photographer's studio. And uh, we also see them in time. So Blake, the poet, William Blake, knew one of them and other crucial figures in the history of mankind. So all of that, all of those elements are swimming together. All of those storylines are interrelated by these ideas of angelic nature, divinity, twisting time and space, mental images, and so on. That's it. That's the closest I can get to like a short summary of the vol. It, uh, which is fascinating because it doesn't, um, that that summary doesn't include any of the events the events that happen <laughs> um yeah and uh, it's I mean, still yeah it's it's worth noting to people listening so anyone who's read this even if um so a, a brief publication history um that will help illuminate a little bit the first book came out in i think it was the mid to late 2000s um but it took a number of years for him to draft and that's very immediately apparent when you read his prose which which we're going to touch on um it's very clear that a tremendous amount of love and attention went into this book um or these books and specifically his life as a poet a playwright a performance artist and a sculptor um especially his work as a sculptor you can feel wafting through every single sentence he measures the words and the cadence far more than the immediate intelligibility of his sentences much like the way that a, a poet or a contemporary sculptor wields phenomenology and experience of art above legibility of art because of this fundamental understanding that poets get better than this is also uh non-shock this is my biggest qualm with a lot of the arguments about the accessibility of young adult literature um they get that fundamentally art works by experiencing art not by understanding art the mm -hmm. uh and this is also on a certain level why knowing the events of the book don't 
don't matter. This touches yeah. on what we were talking about before with a million things will happen. One sentence will be like, will be like a spinning diamond, just flashing these like million colors that you didn't know exist off of all of its facets, the interior reflections, the, um, the way that John D and his scryer saw the dance of angels in a polished stone. It feels like that, but yeah. nothing will have happened. Like in terms of plot motion, <laughs> if you were to say, okay, what actions, what present tense actions occurred in that sentence? None of them. They're just, mulling over in a very poetic way over and over and over chewing and rechewing the same information such that you spend 40 pages swimming in this Joycean fog. It feels more like Finnegan's wake than say like an adventure novel. And then you realize nothing's really happened. And then you'll turn one page and he'll summarize an entire gunfight between hundreds of people in like a paragraph. <laughs> and you're like, holy fuck. Um, and then he's back to angels and their their cruel perception of time. Um, but then also, like, I think it's kind of like, um, you know, how you look in a microscope and you have these lenses that you can apply to it and change your zoom in levels. So the same thing happens here because then some scenes are very action driven. Right. Like uh, yeah. a certain standoff between. I, I really don't want to spoil it because it's one of the best parts of the book between a certain gunman and a certain nefarious agent. Right, uh, uh, along along a river, um, suddenly you get this like intense, physical, motion-driven kind of description where where the action leads the way, and like you said, you turn the page, and the other one is like, did you ever consider the interplay between bees and forests and time for like thirty pages? It's. So this actually touches on the the the, tre the treacly literary nature of of his writing. That um, this is uh, this also touches on, I think, as well. One of my fundamental um, defenses of, if not the classics as a as a superset, then at least some classics. And the reason why that general notion, I think, is is useful, even if it's misapplied and its construction is often um racistly and misogynistically driven and things like that you know, there, there are obvious mm -hmm. critiques of it but but there is a useful kernel within that because this work reads more than anything as a contemporary occultists and playwrights and artists swimming within the world of william blake uh, a good bit of Milton and uh, a, a big heaping spoonful of Joyce. But mm -hmm. folded within there, you get the rise of, say, like um, contemporary African literature that sort of uh, burst into the international scene off of the back of things like The Palm Wine Drunkard and My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Obviously, Africa had been producing literature for literally thousands of years, um, but that's the stuff that made a uh, that made a racist world um, take note and go like, oh, maybe maybe we're being pieces of shit. Um, you get threads <laughs> of fabular um, Arabic and North African literature folding in these. He, he uses grace notes of the cultures and environments that would have been colonized in the text of this book to mm -hmm. create a fundamental magic behind them in a way that 
this will be a fairly abstract point, I think, unless uh, you've you've read the same kinds of stuff that I have. But I'm gonna I'm gonna wing it and hope that this makes sense. We get he plays at the same fundamental divide: that of a rationalist Europe and that of a non-rationalist, uh, more primordial, broader world. It's a trope that is often wield racistly because it views it as like there is, you know, that's where you get the magical primitive and the magical Negro archetype and um, the enlightened savage and all this kind of stuff that, that just reeks of racism and ignores the very real uh, nature that like one of the first universities founded in, in world history was in uh, West Africa mm -hmm. um, that we have massive uh, trade metropolitans in Timbuktu and, you know, uh, all these kinds of things. He does it in a way, though, that that I feel completely undercuts that, or if not completely, it definitely um, it seems aware of those critiques. So, he'll, precisely he'll, uh, because of the fact that he builds out, uh, you get introduced fairly quickly to um, insectoid androids that live inside of a at first a seemingly magical manner that is then revealed to be the um, the top portion of an ancient technological manner. And one that's not presented as ancient aliens nonsense, but things of like, no, people who were more in harmony with these kinds of physical relations, like the, the physics and mechanics that makes technology work, were able to make this. And then colonialists literally came and built a colonial manner on top of their work and took credit for it. Um, yeah. So God, how, 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 how do we, how do we crack this nut open Eden? So let, let me, let me suggest, an approach. <laughs> let me suggest an approach. I totally agree with what you said. And I think it's a very, um, a very powerful insight, the way that he wields this trope of, you know, the mysterious and ancient Africa in a non-racist way. And, and what I'd like to propose is like a few steps for which we get to Catling. So the first step is, is the full-on racism, right? It's the, the the polarity of of both worlds. It's like the writing of um, Lady Montague or uh, Montesquieu when he's talking about the stranger from uh, Persia or, or in general European writing about the Arabic Peninsula and the African continent, right? This idea of here and there, um, normal and other, and this um, distance between them. And then we get to another round of literature um, that tries to reverse the polarity, right? Make the center the periphery and the periphery the center. So I think one of the most famous examples is Heart of Darkness, right? By Joseph Conrad. Well, well th this reversal of the cruelty and the barbarian um, horror is not in Africa, right? It is brought to Africa by the white person, right? And the center is Africa, and the other is Europe, the the dark, the savage, the um, the odd and the unhinged lies not in Africa, but in Europe. We can also cite um, Raymond Roussel, right, who wrote Impressions of Africa, Again, reversing what is important about his book to make Africa more central to it. 
which is a it's it's good progress right it's better than the racist formulation but it's still stuck inside this polarity um or as Deleuze would say um and Guattari of course in an arborescent kind of structure right like a tree like something is at the base and something is at the top and you only play with what is what or well I, I think actually the the correct person to cite here would be Derrida right this idea of the duality of language right dark and light natural and artificial and so on is maintained here Europe and Africa the relationship is always of polarity but you just reverse the sides but then Catling and not just Catling but a bunch of writers in this um, literary sphere they're asking what if we break apart the the dual polar structure entirely what if we write rhizomatically right what if we write like a fever in the sense that it is not located in any part of the body and i'll explain i know that's pretty obtuse but think about it a fever is a very special kind of pain or discomfort because it ha it doesn't it doesn't have a source it's not like a headache or muscle pain or nerve pain or an injury it's kind of like it permeates who you are and it's coming from everywhere right so if you can nail that feeling of the fever which is how alan moore i think described this uh, i don't i don't remember if it was or, or terry gilliam described uh, the vol that it's like a fever dream i think that's very astute because the fever dream is what breaks down centrality right no part of the narrative is the anchor there is no anchor you think you figured it out okay so some of the characters one of them is uh ishmael he's a cyclops why he's <laughs> blind catling um he's a cyclops he lives in essenwald and a lot of the early chapters about are about him and his struggle with his nature and society and so on and you you're reading the first few chapters and you're like oh this is a nietzschean story right about this guy who's trying to fulfill his uh potential and rise above the limits of his society but then the focus shifts all the way back to the london thread and suddenly the london storyline becomes more important and you're like oh so this is a story about like insanity in the west and how africa is this locale of craziness but then it shifts again into one of the best storylines in the entire in the entire series about one of the williams and his an iripeste his uh, um african native lover who is a priestess and by the way of whose body he makes a bow yeah like he bends her spine until she is the bow and uses her ligaments as the string and other parts of her as the arrow and the arrows are magical they travel through time yeah we told you it's wild so by jumping between these like localities some of them in europe some of them in africa and native some of them in africa but colonial some of them magical some of them current some of them mundane Catling really creates this sort of haze right that breaks down the question of is africa the center or the periphery and is europe the center or the periphery but asks why is there a center why is there a periphery what are these categories kind of like doing how do we interrogate them and mess around with them he does one of the most fundamentally important things in the project of literature um that 
I think so th this is coming from the perspective of someone who studied literature a lot. And I don't mean to invoke that as a matter of expertise because I don't think it's that. I think it just winds up being one of perspective that you encounter so many works of literature. And the overall question is like, if I were to make all works of literature fit together, how how might I do that? And obviously this is a failed endeavor. Better people have tried and it, it just doesn't work. But the the notion of a notion that bleeds out of every single page is that he's not talking about he's not talking about um people or places he's talking about the way things stitch together and the way that one thing ejects or creates as a pustule another thing um it's the sort of fractalized like absinthe soaked um victorian psychedelia way of approaching literature it's the same primordial effusiveness that drives something like finnegan's wake or drives nietzsche at his best or drives alan moore at his best um it's very prescient that he had um alan moore write a blurb yeah. for this um because i mean obviously there are figures here and Actually, no, let's let's touch on it. It's also the thing, the the beating heart of William Blake. Um, you can't like magic, the occult or art and not like William Blake. I think this is sort of like an unassailable comment. It's one that I don't necessarily have much of a base for, but I also believe it wholeheartedly and there's no way to disabuse me of this. I think there's a... There is a sacred lightning bolt magic that feels purely initiatory. It feels like entering entering a tabernacle for the first time. It feels like uh, being confirmed in a church. It feels like the veil parting in a mystic rite when you read Jerusalem for the first time, or when you read um, his Horizon cycle. There is a like. There is. This is also fundamentally why Nietzsche is a philosopher and why he is not a poet, um, because Nietzsche still at some point is writing about the thing that William Blake's work simply is. This yeah. is the same with Joyce. They are a primal thunder. You experience them. You don't think them. You don't know them. These are... This is also where we get the worst critiques of Blake or Joyce are things like, well, I don't understand what the sentences mean. I don't know how they assemble in a way that, and this is also why we actually include music in every episode aside from liking music. You get the same thing from Pink Floyd, from Aronsi Pazuzu, from, from Opeth, from all these other places. What do those long instrumental passages mean? You can't put it into words, but but you know it. You experience it and you know it in an unnameable way. And they do that with words. That's that's just their format. They're not musicians, they're writers. And this bleeds that, but about a post-colonial and anti-colonial uh, insight about locations of of magic and experience. Just like like you were saying, it it feels it necessarily must submerge you into a literary fever dream because the things it's trying to tell you are by nature not arborescent structures. It's not trying to tell you a rigid structure of understanding the world because that would be antithetical to what the book is even about. It is about, and this touches on the um 
the very necessary non-human component of it. It's about a world beyond human understanding, not because it's above us, but because it's below us. Like that nature of pure immediacy and pure experience as not a simplicity, but like a deepening of our relations with things. <laughs> this is revealed in, again, this book is crazy, the revelation that humanity was not the chosen race of man, that humanity were the tenders of the garden. The garden itself was the chosen race of God. The vor and the denizens of the vor, the insects of the vor, the plants of the vor, are the thing that God made to worship him. That's why, in this book, angels resemble dried trees. They seem to writhe with insects and worms. Because people were always just meant to be garden tenders for the bounty of God. And our failure, our ejection from the garden, and the reason why the garden drives us mad, is because we did violence against the garden. That The tree of knowledge was the tree of knowledge for plants for trees, for insects, and that that's why we weren't supposed to take it. We were merely supposed to be the tenders of this garden in a very Voltarian sense. Yeah. It, so the, the fundament at a certain point thematically is about releasing these very egocentric and hyper-rationalist uh, senses of order that give rise to things like colonialism. They give rise to sense like uh, senses like the necessity for consistent material extraction. And it's precisely a surrender to this like eco-socialist uh, harmonium that allows us to witness the reality of the chosen one of God, which is a uh, corkscrew penis cyclops writhing with magical <laughs> ants. <laughs> yeah. So I want to connect to what you said and show another like aspect of it um and again we, we won't be able to even touch on like 10 percent of everything that's amazing <laughs> about this book like there's the scene in in the cloven well um what's her name fuck serena goes to the south the savannah and remembers the tree of disembodied faces she dreamed of as a child and that's turns out like that repressed memory turns out to be the entire impetus of the character. I, 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 there's so many, so much, so many things to talk about, but I want to talk about this idea of left and right and crossing the crossing of paths or the confusion of directions that keeps repeating through the work. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I think goes back to both what I said about, you know, fevers and hazes and no center but also what you said about you know confusion of purposes uh, a, a confusion of roles and its resolution so there are a few um instances of this crossing right one of them is the very natural crossing of our eyes and how our brains are wild so i think that's kind of like uh a commonly cited trivium these days that you know the left side of your brain is where your right eye goes and the left eye goes sorry the right eye goes into the left side of your brain did i say that right did i get that confused who knows i i yeah um, <laughs> close enough <laughs> close enough yeah so there's, there's like a fundamental crossing inside of your brain right 
And from that fundamental crossing, this is where photography comes into the novel. Catling asks a really powerful question. What does that crossing, like the fact that we are a crossed entity, what does that do to us on the physical, mental, and metaphorical level? And that kind of brings us back to the discussion we had in the first half of the cast, right? The interplay between materiality, in this case, you know, manifested in the very biological body that we have, and sign and meaning. Like in what sense can we say that our nerves being crossed doesn't affect metaphor, right? It informs so much of human experience, so much of how photography works, how films work, how our daily experiences work, right? How we, we perceive space. So by unpacking that and saying, let's be very literal about this. I'm literally talking about the crossing of the nerves, but also because I'm being so literal, I cross into metaphor. He's, unable, he's able to, to explore all of these interplays and foreshadowings and, and literary devices. Now, another example of, of such a crossing is um, Mutter is this uh, working class person who is the, how would you describe him? He's like the janitor, right? Um, for that house that Langdon mentioned, right? The house that was built above this ancient artificial structure and technology. And he does something very bad. He, for decades, has been ferrying boxes from a nearby warehouse into the house and from the house to a warehouse. And the only um, condition of his employment by a mysterious figure, by the way, we won't get into that because it's super weird. It's yeah. a robot. It's a robot made up of like it's a robot that's, that's also an angel. Yeah. Maybe. Let's not get into that. <laughs> I'm not sure. That's one of the, like the open yeah. points that I have about the book, right? Um, who the fuck is that entity? By the way, no answers in this book. There's no answers for anything. <laughs> um, so he looks in one of the boxes, and you know, of course, like the, the the classic verboten. If you if you break the verboten, you have to pay the price. And the price here is get this: his elderly son gets his hands switched. So now his left hand is connected to his right arm and his right arm is connected to his left hand. Now, Catling does this beautiful thing where, kind of like in fairy tales, this is not just a punishment. It is a punishment but it also unlocks new abilities because now this man is double crossed, right? It's crossed originally and then the crossing gets switched. Suddenly he can see things that other people can't see. He can see invisible characters. There is an invisible character. He can see powers. He can see meanings. He's uncanny, right? That like crossing and double crossing makes him to the side other of the main world and enables him to like see better. 
it so becomes a two, parallel yeah. to the to the the returning of someone touched by a psychopomp that they yeah they return to this primordial pre-human existence that of that of the wraith uh wandering the underworld and as a result comes back to the realm of the living with i mean that's how uh, on paper, things like oracular insight was supposed to work. Is this person is so close to the realm of the dead that they can see beyond the yeah? It, and he he gently touches on that stuff, and then again he does enough of the wink and the nod to be like, but it's way more fucked up than that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I totally agree. It, it is like a psychopomp experience. There is a crossing of a border right but it's all done so faintly and in such an unsettling way that the novels begin to flirt with horror in certain segments like not the horror of you know like a jump scare or even the horror of a psychological thriller but the horror of things being faintly familiar and yet completely strange at the same time and the way he does it with this idea of, of the crossing of nerves, of how our bodies are wired, of the strange ways in which our mind twists and bends the world outside in our perceptions, it's just so effective. And it goes back to what you said, like, you can't understand it. Like, if you write it down, it doesn't make sense logically. There's no, like, it's not Brandon Sanderson, right? There's not, like, a meticulously... Fuck him, by the way. Sorry, sure. I just hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's, you I'm not, you I'm said not my trigger word. Yeah. It's like, I, it's I like I'm a mousetrap. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Anyway, yeah. it's not like a meticulously uh, charted <laughs> and described and created magic system. It's a system of subtlety, of inference, of hinting. Like you said, the, wink, the winking of an eye. But it's not less effective for it it's more effective for it right again this like this last thing i'll say it's like fuzziness of the metaphor the crossing of the nerves the camera obscura the breaking of the verboten the forest uh time and space and all that stuff makes that vapor of metaphor of language just penetrate all of your defenses and you like find yourself being incredibly bored by a passage and then you'll turn the page and it just shocks you into attention because suddenly he like all that stuff that he was building up just squeezes in between your defenses and like strikes you to the core. Um, yeah. There is. So he does a powerful thing um, in terms of in terms of his language and how that winds up making making his book move and work, uh, which is. It, which is when you take, and this is something that um, outside of him, only really, only really writers like like Borges um, do especially well, and it, it leads actually precisely to why people like Borges feel so evasive. You can read so many things written about Borges and his work, and it feels so insightful, but then you return to the work, and there's still this like perfectly black stone that's like a, an infinite well of mystery and it feels like you're you're not actually closer that the sense of enclosure around the work is an illusion that you built to calm yourself rather than something fundamentally grounded and it's precisely when you take a metaphor as you were describing 
and you make it literally real, but you also don't I'm trying to I'm trying to think of how to frame it. It's not that you don't linger because he does linger. He lingers that that's the primary motive of of the movement of the novel is is that of lingering. But he lingers in ways that aren't designed to offer answers or even offer rational insight. They offer experiential insight. You do you see how these things move and interact, but something like a a young girl who speaks of the voice of a grown woman forcing a priest against the will of his belief in God to carve so deep into stone with his fingers that they're rendered into bloody nubs in order to create rivulets for a living hive mind of ants to move across. This is a metaphor that's so that profoundly scene, it that yeah that destroyed me. It 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 scrapes at my nerves the way that like being at a dentist and getting a shot of Novocaine directly into the nerves in my jaw feels. Um but it it's a metaphor made so precisely literal and then not elaborated on. He lingers on certain elements of it. Um and and not even the ones that you'd think a normal writer would. He doesn't linger on the feeling of the hand or um you know the the terror in the guy's head. You know, he he doesn't pick the normal motions that um on, on a boring like constructive end uh would have become cliche, but in this more profound sense, because they become cliche, they become blockages to that pure experiential component, which is what he's after. He focuses on these strange little floral twists of of the the matter and the eventness of what's going on, such that at at all times you feel like you're half awake. You feel like the the way that when you watch like a dog, walk through your living room with like a plate in its mouth at like 5 a.m. as you're getting ready for work. And <laughs> on paper, you'd be like, oh, he took it from the table because I didn't put the dishes away last night. And he can. But, you know, in the morning, you're like, holy fuck, what am I seeing? <laughs> like, um, yeah, or like you walk out and there's a bunch of uh, fog and you see like uh, lights just glowing in random places in the air. And, you know, again, your rational brain would be like, oh, these are, these are lamps that are glowing within. But instead you're like, I'm about to be taken by the angels. Um, the, the same kind of thing occurs within his prose, that he deliberately, he makes the metaphors profoundly, deeply, literally real. They are actually just the events and things going on around you. There's no, there's no sleight of hand. But because there is no sleight of hand, because it's directly in front of you, and because he refuses to elaborate on it, it makes it more mystical. Like that element of fantasy writing, and this also touches on why I hate Brad Sanderson so much, and hard magic in general. <laughs> I hate that yeah. because it doesn't... It That kind of writing fundamentally shows they do not understand what fantasy is and why it matters. Why the mm -hmm. fable and the fairy tale have lived longer than these science fictional approaches to fantasy stories. And it's because not that there are things that we reach to science fiction for. There's things that they do, stories about engineering, stories about systems. These are important. These are valuable. They have a function. But these kinds of stories, the ones like like the Vor, are it's fantasy is an extension of poeticism, is an extension of 
the realm of the psychological. Again, something we were talking about um, earlier on. This is also why I'm able to reconcile dabbling with the occult and being a Marxist-Leninist who, who is obviously obsessed with materialist historical dialectics. Because one is the realm of the world and the interactions of objects within the world. A very real thing, a very fundamental thing, something that we must grasp. But the other is the endlessly effusive and endlessly contradictory realm of the purely psychological and experiential. That we can understand death on paper, but the act of dying and the fear of dying and the fear of the experience of dying and the experience of being dead is different from the act and object of death. Just like, yeah. and this inverts into life, the act of being alive, witnessing life, being a part of life, a part of imagination, a part of dream, a part of suffering, a part of yearning, is fundamentally different than the material relations of those objects. They, they interrelate, and they're, they're interlinked, but this lives and knows that magic lives in that, that fever state. And that fundamental understanding, and this is also uh, touches on, again, one of my many bugbears, that people who say that hearing about dreams is boring or that books that include dreams are a narrative cop-out don't understand the necessary function experientially of dream. That it's this primal revelation of the inner self to the surface self in ways that can be, can be totally meaningless or can also be these strange revelations of like, there is a second mind lurking within my mind, and it thinks and feels differently than I do. And I get to witness how it thinks and feels through only the realm of dream, or through only the realm of subconscious response to the world. My conscious brain can't access it by asking. I can only receive it unbidden. And this is an entire novel of this unbidden flood pouring out over you quite literally at one point a guy gets buried in the sands of the thames and drowned by an angel <laughs> because william blake yeah. told him that he needed to do that it's, it's crazy it's the book's crazy oh yeah, yeah did we mention that this book's also bananas on tops of being beautiful it's like it's, it's <laughs> fucking crazy <laughs> yep you find out tom so of bedlam who's a real man um, like you can look up and they, they dive into his history pretty thoroughly here. Also related to angels who were stick people. Pretty cool. <laughs> so I, I want to maybe wrap us up here with a quote by the man himself, right? Um, the, this is from that guardian interview that I mentioned, right? And the narrator or the interviewer asks <coughs> Gatling, um, you know, he's always been like this weird guy and what drives him, right? And Kathleen says a bunch of stuff, but he also says this following sentence, which I think is just um, incredible. The imagination is a muscle, one that increases with exercise. You have to tell it that's not good enough. You've got to go further. I've always wanted more than one life. Inventing fiction, performing, they're all ways of being someone else. I feel so stupid that it took me this long to realize that I could do this in words too. I can redefine gravity simply because 
I say so. And that's just like, first of all, I want to have a beer with this guy. Yeah. Like, I want to sit down with this guy. And just, he seems like such a cool guy. But second of all, you know what's funny? Through this quote, you kind of feel the same impulse that makes William Blake's magicians work, right? And the magicians in the vol itself. And the magic of, I mean, he's a hack, obviously, of someone like Alistair Corley, right? This idea that the will through the imagination can manifest anything. But instead of going into like the grifter mode of, and I mean that literally, like you can literally change reality, he goes into this place of the idea is to live life differently through the imagination, right? To live life differently through this um, ability of our minds to question the most basic of things. And that ties into what you said, which I completely agree with, about the difference between poetry and prose, right? Prose describes how things are or can be, right? And poetry describes things that inherently cannot be. They are often explicitly contradictions, but somehow speak more to reality than descriptions of how things are. And I think at the end of the day, that's like the genius of the Vore and all of the other books in the trilogy, the two other books in the trilogy. They don't make sense. They don't compile. You cannot chart them. But in the most ludicrous and most hallucinatory, they contain deep truths about our minds and faith and society and how we perceive things like loss and memory and time and they're just like they stick with you man you know what i mean <laughs> like if while i was reading the vol you know if someone came up to me and said tell me right now what you're reading like describe to me what you're reading i i probably couldn't do it just like we can't really do it on this episode but then suddenly like walking on the street or working or talking to my friends i'm like holy shit this is this is what he meant this is what he was talking about i, I i'll remember something and and the way that i think about it i'll be like yeah i i, I get it but then someone I, I i articulate that and someone says okay what do you get and i'm like i, I don't know <laughs> i just know that i get it um it's the way that the way that i tend to think of this and this is also why i defend the um the sometimes esoteric or like seemingly meaninglessly challenging books that I like sometimes is precisely that affect of, of poetry that I think. So my one challenge to what you said is I don't think there is that fundamental difference between poetry and prose. I think that is enforced by people. And I think that we do mm -hmm. see people beholden to that, but yeah. I think these books are fundamentally a rebuke to that. And that this is actually the big blockage that he must have felt for decades, that the reason why he thought he couldn't do it with words is because we tell people that prose must function differently yeah. when yeah. it doesn't. I mean, this is, this bleeds, I, when I say bleeds literally the same magic as Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and is why those are 
masterwork geniuses. And this bleeds the same thing as Moby Dick, Eden, um, <laughs> Eden, um, <laughs> is because at a certain point, it's about becoming an ocean that you immerse yourself in. It's not a story that you're told with a beginning and an end. It The characters don't live there to be characters. And they don't live there necessarily to be symbols either because that's that overly truncates them. You can encase a symbol. The whole notion of symbolizing and encoding a symbol, which which we know from, from semiotics, is ultimately one of enclosure. And this is the inversion of that. It's things that explode outward. Things that a very Deleuzian sense of symbolism where it's a thing that is endlessly changing shape because it's, um, we, we've touched on this before. The thing that's so moving about this and the thing that's so primordially powerful about prose at its peak when it is that hybridization of poetry and prose is that it is pure play. It is precisely the thing that Nietzsche and Deleuze talk about. It is precisely the utopian bursting open of the world, not in, as it, as you rightfully mentioned, not in the promises of a grifter that you can magically control the real shape of reality. This is, it doesn't give you the same ludicrous and frankly pseudo-fascist promises of contemporary astrology or the like, I'm sorry, everyone, I do agree with Adorno on that one, um, <laughs> that these are rules of reality that if you act on them correctly, you can control your fate and all these it offers a warmer and richer answer, which is that they are ways in which we experience and experience an interface with the world and with experience as as a thing. Mm -hmm. That it's like poetry is a way of seeing the world, not a way of like it's not funny line breaks and being overly forthright about your trauma without you know, uh, without knack behind it, like, and that's one of the things that I love so much about him is he also avoids some of the, if you read a lot of literary fiction, eventually the cliches that you become fed up with, or less the middle-aged dude sleeping with young chicks of which again, I don't know why that's such a big cliche. I've read maybe two books where that happens, but <laughs> I'm certain they exist. I just, I, I haven't really run into them and I read a lot of this stuff, but you run into other cliches, which is like fixation on wordplay equals wit, like puns equal wit. These little winking boomerish fiction got really fixated on this. You know, winking little bits of wordplay are are presented as wit, even though they don't contain insight and they don't contain transformative capacity. That's also fundamentally why a lot of those people wound up becoming neoliberals as they got older, like their radicalism died because they never allowed radicalism to take root in anything deeper than uh, aesthetic and affect. Um, uh, Burnham boy. Uh, yeah, this is again, that sense of madness and play within madness. This is also, if you want to know, if you want to know the, the overthinking part of my brain that like thinks eight times about like dumb little jokes, this is also the thing that uh, drives my approach to Twitter. <laughs> I, I'm literally on the autism spectrum, so it shouldn't surprise you that I overthink that. But um, yeah, that yeah. sense of play with a capital P and it's interface with madness, it's interface with poetry that, as you're saying, it sums up to you don't understand this book by the time that it's done. I 
I would challenge anyone who comes to me and says, like, I totally understand it because it doesn't even feel like Catling totally understands it. It feels like he does that very deft Tolkienian twist of yeah. deliberately including things that he doesn't fully understand, but that he knows are right. Like this is true and does belong here, even if I don't know it. And I seek to continue to not know it because it's partly that mystery that deepens it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a wave that washes over you. Like, like what you were saying, I, I, I get it. I don't know it and I can't articulate it. <laughs> like, it's not that I don't want to, it's that I cannot do it. I'm not capable, but you know, you, you, you get it. Yep. Um, fucking masterpiece. This is just probably the best. One of the best things I've read from the 21st century. Like, yeah, I, this I just period. want to say that. Just go read it. Like, we couldn't, we didn't do justice to like five percent of it. There's so much we didn't cover. There's there's zombies, and they're weird. They're not like zombies like you'd imagine. They have they have lawyers. I'm not I'm not joking. There's a zombie lawyer. Um, there's we didn't even talk all that much about the androids. Some of the kin, right? Some of the best characters in the book. We didn't the talk first... about. You, you go on. I I, I was going to bring up some of the blurbs that like the the first book has blurbs from Alan Moore, Terry Gilliam, Ian Sinclair, Jeff Vandermeer, and Philip Pullman, all saying that this guy is better than they are. This is his debut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like Nazis. We didn't talk about the Nazis. They figure in here. There's a guy who ages backwards. There's so many amazing things. A guy, an angel eats someone's brain at some point. Um, or the guy eats the angel's brain. It feels encyclopedic in the same way that Pinchon at his best is encyclopedic. That um, yeah. uh, Philip K. Dick near the end of his life was encyclopedic. And the way that only someone who is much older and has so much more information that they can synthesize. This also touches on like if Neil Stevenson could wrote, could write prose the same way he writes the interlinking of systems, it would read like this because <laughs> it's yeah. just as virtuosic in the level of synthesis. And Neil Stevenson is a massive virtuoso of uh, synthetic fiction of like fiction in which 9 million ideas are occurring in one thing all linked together. But this is also as prosaically and poetically virtuosic. Yeah, I agree. So just go check it out. The yeah. Whole. V O R R H. And now let's do some music. Yeah. We're doing Botanist. So, I. Is there anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't know who Botanist is? I kick would. Their hope. Asses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, this guy has been on the forefront of the avant garde, atmospheric, black metal genre that's been coming out of the Pacific Northwest for a while now. And he adds um, a few interesting touches. First of all, he has a character. You know, black metal loves its personality and stage um, antics and all that stuff. But this guy's character is an eco-terrorist uh, using nature and biology to fight back against the scourge of mankind. And um, 
the other thing that he brings to the table is Hammer Dulcimer, which is becoming more and more of a thing inside post-black and black gays and all that stuff, but he was really one of the first people to do it, right? Um, and it gives this, both the metaphor of the eco-terrorism and the dulcimer, give his music this, again, feverish quality, just like in the vol, right? This, like, how to grasp all surrounding uh, feeling to it. And he keeps, like, playing around with this formula. So in 2019, he released Ecosystem, which was fantastic. He actually released two versions of the album with different vocals and different production. A very interesting experiment. Um, and in 2020, he released Photosynthesis, October 30th, 2020. And this is one of his most, I would say, dreamlike, and again, to go back to the same metaphor or adjective, feverish sort of albums that focus on where the other, where the previous album was more about, you know, mankind in nature and our relationship with the ecosystem. This one really focuses on nature itself. It uses photosynthesis, obviously, from the name, but also other natural processes to talk about the life of plants, the cycle of plants, and it does so in a very effective way. Um, we're going to listen to Water, which is the second track, and just try and listen to the opening two minutes. It has a lot of, like a really fast riff with the dulcimer behind it and really powerful blast beats and try and like channel that feeling of fever, of decomposing, of disappearing into a haze. Because I think um, the track and botanists' music in general channels that in a very powerful way. All right. This is The Botanist with Water. <laughs> 